The Essence of Investing podcast is powered by Next Level Communication and by the world of allocators. Next Level Communication helps investors and multinational executives in Asia tell their stories to their most important global stakeholders. Get in touch at reachnextlevel.net to learn more about cross-border IR, strategic communication, and presentation training services. The world of allocators encourages long-term thinking and the adoption of the endowment approach among asset managers in China. Get in touch to join our community of domestic and overseas practitioners. Hi, and welcome to The Essence of Investing, where we explore the stories, strategies, wit, and wisdom of investors from across Asia and beyond. I'm your host, Jonathan Reckman, and my guest today is the one and only George Yang, partner at Capital 49 a VC fund launched by cross-border fintech platform, Airwallex. In this episode, George shares stories from an epic career, from banking to buyouts to fund of funds to family offices. Strategies for building cross-border startups that connect Asian supply with global demand. And hard-earned wisdom about finding happiness and fulfillment beyond material wealth. George was kind enough to host me at his home in Shanghai to record this conversation. Please listen, like, share, give feedback, and most of all, enjoy. We are sitting in this incredibly cool basement office slash rec room that you've produced yourself. <laughs> you've got two super cool looking guitars, Six. space station schematics on the back here. What does this place mean to you? And then I'm going to want to ask about how we got here. So remember, as a young boy, so we always had a fantasy of having our secret base, right? <laughs> so yeah, when I'm 40 years old, finally I have my own secret base. <laughs> Take a long time uh, to, to get here, but, but it's fun. Yeah, it's a terrifically cool space, yeah, and thank you for inviting me to yeah. to share it. My pleasure. You have invested in Asia in so many different capacities on so many different sides of the table, on the buy side and the sell side, uh, uh, GPs and LP in private assets and public assets with government money, family office money mm -hmm. um, for decades now. Mm. Tell us what the arc of this journey was. Mm. It's like a walk down memory lane. Walk, take, us, <laughs> take us the whole straw. Yeah, okay. To the, to the very beginning, I was uh, born and raised in Shanghai. So I studied in Shanghai all the way to my uh, year, year 10, year 11. I was reading a lot of uh, Star Wars, kind of fancy the Hollywood a little bit. And I found out, yeah, I really wanted to uh, finance maybe in the future. Can I interrupt uh, there just yeah, for yeah, a sure. minute? You started by saying, I love Star Wars and mm -hmm. science fiction, mm -hmm. and I fell in love with finance. Yeah. What's the relationship between these? So one of the major things was the movie Wall Street itself. <laughs> so I found, wow, that was actually as interesting as Star Wars. <laughs> Michael Douglas, Gordon Gekko. Yeah, 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 yeah. So lots of the interesting things of our finance concept. And then the, the professors at the NYU, uh, lots of them are investment bankers, right? They told me a lot about the industry. It's not what you think, but it's going to be uh, fun and lead you to uh, a lot of uh, new places. So that, that's the time I start to uh, really dig deep uh, into the industry story. I was uh, lucky enough uh, to be accepted uh, into Macquarie Bank. So that was the peak of the, the last uh, boom. So uh, 2006, uh, early 2007, before the GFC, right? So the first deal we were doing in, in the Melbourne office was a $12 billion deal. So as a young graduate, you can imagine we were like really <laughs> excited. Yeah, so the deal was in the news every day, but there was uh, no glamour. So most of the time we were like a bunch of analysts that we were sleeping, uh, literally sleeping in the war room, <laughs> so-called, because of the confidentiality and everything, right? Sleeping for uh, three hours a day. So it's almost like uh, in the military, <laughs> but we got good training. We did that for almost a uh, half a year, but then the tsunami happened, right? So our boss was uh, walking in the room and telling everyone, uh, guys, the show is over. <laughs> the LBO, the game is over. You guys should all start to look for different jobs. So I found this uh, accidentally, a very small uh, boutique uh, investment bank or financial advisor and in, in Beijing, right? Uh, called the China Renaissance. They only had uh, 20 or 30 people, but I met with uh, Bao Fan. Yeah, sorry for what happened to him uh, lately, but he's a very nice guy. So we talked and he said, uh, we are doing investment banking. We are all from uh, Wall Street and you have your proper training. Uh, you, you can do this with us. And we will uh, be focusing on the China tech industry. And uh, uh, by the way, you will take a 80% uh, pay cut. <laughs> so I was like, okay, <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> and the best thing I think happened in those years, uh, one thing, 
we really watched the China internet industry like gruesome uh, in those years. And also uh, we made a lot of good friends. So all the people went to uh, China Renaissance uh, from 2008 all the way to 2010. So later we all graduated. Most of them uh, went to top tier VCs or top tier internet companies as CFOs, right? So now we have this uh, WeChat group of 300 of us, ex China Renaissance guys. The China Renaissance right. Mafia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also another thing I found uh, really rewarding was uh, as a young analyst uh, in a very small company, you have uh, lots of responsibilities. It's not like uh, in, in the big banks, you're only in charge of PPT or one model. You can actually go out and pitch your own clients. So we start to go to uh, M&A conferences in, in Shanghai because most of the Fortune 500, their CFO or China GM are based here. So as an analyst or associate, I was uh, handing out my business card to many of the CFOs and China GM. And we say, uh, your, all your deals in China, they're going to be less than uh, 100 mil. So the Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, they're not going to be interested. But we are a small firm, we're cheap. <laughs> we can help you to uh, bridge the gap talking to the Chinese uh, clients and uh, targets. So we actually did that a lot in 2008. Uh, that really laid the foundation uh, for the China Renaissance uh, M&A team. How did you go from the sell side to the buy side? Right, right, right. So came uh, 2011. Yeah, I was uh, yeah, in a quite steady relationship with my uh, girlfriend back then. Yeah, we were thinking of getting married. You know the drill in Shanghai, right? <laughs> to get married, you have to buy an apartment first. <laughs> so I found out with my, uh, back then, the, the salary at China Renaissance, I couldn't get a mortgage to buy a decent apartment. So I was start to talk to all my uh, contacts from the buy side, right? And I found out uh, how much the, the KKRs and the Blackstones, they're paying their associates. I was like, okay, <laughs> I better go to the buy side. <laughs> so that was the only uh, job move actually uh, was, was motivated by, by money, yeah, I have to admit. Ended up uh, going to a very large, uh, reputable uh, European buyout fund. Found out, uh, soon found out, uh, even as a multinational, that reputable, uh, that well-founded, if you don't adapt to the local China market, it's still pretty hard. Uh, because they are doing 100 million to 300 million uh, buyout strategy in China when all the Chinese are like first generation. And it's very hard uh, to bring all those uh, buyout uh, value adds to the first generation companies. Uh, and many, not many people would sell if the company is good, right? <laughs> so end up uh, going to a lot of companies. They want to sell, but you know, they are not good companies. Uh, but in the end, we spent one year uh, convincing the European ICs that we should do some uh, testing on minority investment uh, into good companies and uh, have help them doing IPO in Hong Kong. So I only spent uh, one year within this uh, mega buyout fund, also learned a lot. But then uh, one day, the, the, the ex-colleague at China Renaissance called me, uh, my ex-boss, telling me, hey, remember that research you did on fund of fund, right? The institutional LP, the endowment, uh, the fund of fund, they account for almost 20% of all the LP money in the US, right? But in China, <laughs> it's only less than 1%. So there's a huge potential. Uh, do you want to come with us? And by the way, you will take a 50% pay cut, <laughs> but we'll get, give you some stock. <laughs> First time trying to run a they <laughs> yeah. give you the 80% pay cut. Yeah, yeah, the second yeah, yeah. time you so see, I said, oh, okay, 50%. Yeah, as long as I can pay my mortgage, that's fine, right? Before I joined, they actually told me we have a 100 million uh, AUM <laughs> to, to attract me to join. But when I went there and I look at the, all the financial model, I calculate, add everything up, it's like much less than that. <laughs> so I say, where's the money? We're going to raise it together, okay? <laughs> so I find out that not, not just uh, going to make the investment, the portfolio decisions by myself, but also, yeah, I'm going to be part, part of the fundraising. Uh, we were too early <laughs> in the market, to be honest, because it's very hard to convince uh, the Chinese uh, high net worth individuals uh, to invest in a fund of fund because you're going to pay two layers of a management fee and a carry, right? Uh, there was no access problem back then. Every fund was raising uh, fund one or fund two in the local currency. So they could invest directly. We start to look for uh, our value add. Back then, you know, the Chinese uh, IPO uh, goes on and off, right? A lot of the LPs were panic. They would say, that's the only way I can exit. Now I don't know if in five years, my companies uh, within the VC can go IPO or not. So when we were doing uh, diligence on those fund two and fund three, many of the time the GP will tell us uh, some of the LP in that fund one was willing to sell <laughs> at cost. So we didn't know it was a big thing uh, back then, but we did a little bit of a testing, uh, bought some of the 
uh, secondary stakes. And within two to three years, we would help the companies uh, go IPO or uh, through M&A exit. And it ended up being a very nice uh, model. Uh, so 2012 to 2014, uh, I think 80% of our money deployment become uh, secondary. So that become a very uh, different strategy compared to all the fund of fund. Because we keep on doing the same thing for, for the five years. Uh, at first, the, the AUM grow very little, but then uh, that year, our AUM actually grow 20 times. But it's in China, the government, uh, the local government start to allocate money as LPs. Uh, so the first government money, the mandate we want, we're very small. It's at the Shanghai street level. The good thing is to give us a free office on the outer rim of Shanghai. <laughs> so then we start to manage uh, uh, Shanghai district uh, money. And then uh, in 2015, uh, one of the Beijing uh, government office, they start to do a beauty parade, so to speak, of all the managers to manage uh, uh, 10 billion uh, RMB, so almost like a yeah, north of a 1 billion kind of a mandate. And they will be the sole LP. So it's almost like a managed account investing to semiconductors. Uh, so we actually prepared for the bid, like a very heavy uh, bid document for one year. We actually won the bid against all the much bigger and stronger Chinese and international players. But then it become an internal discussion between the partners, whether we should solely focus on managing Chinese government money or still have all the private wealth. But then it's really pulling the company into two directions, right? That, that was the year uh, myself and a few other younger partners, we decided to spin off from that main vehicle and started our own platform but only managing private family money. So we actually researched the model a little bit and found out it's called a multifamily office. So we become the one of the first uh, multifamily office in China, uh, starting with uh, only two, two or three uh, family in the first year, a uh, very small AUM. Uh, we also find out the families, they say, you really need to diversify. We, we cannot invest in all the early stage uh, companies. I have no idea what, what you can uh, do. Uh, outside of the VC industry. So we start to uh, research and also bring those families to talk with the global, like third generation or many generation of uh, family offices in the, in the US, in Europe. And we were like really having a, a mind blowing and eye opening experience in 2015 about what it really means to be a multi asset manager. Yeah, learning how to do hedge fund, fund fund, how to do real estate, and how do you really diversify? Uh, geographically, multi-asset class, uh, multi-managers, diversify away all the risk and really become a, a multi-generational uh, wealth transfer machine. Being a uh, very longer term compared to on the sales side or in a very professional uh, large fund, we are not just thinking about year three or year five, we are thinking about a generational uh, thing, how do you avoid those risks. So that become a very rewarding experience. And I look at the early stage investment that we did back in the 2015 all the way to 2018. Uh, I found out a few of the portfolios did really well. Uh, one of them was uh, ByteDance. Yeah, we invested in them when the TikTok was a very new thing, right? But then it really took off. And another company is a Tiger Broker. We invest in the Android stage. And because they were doing uh, US stocks and uh, global stocks, they, they couldn't do that only with a uh, Chinese investor. They actually pivoted to Southeast Asia. And they are winning, winning battles against the local, uh, the incumbent online brokers. So you were already investing in cross-border fintech. How did you meet Airwallex? Uh, interesting was uh, 2015. Uh, I was doing a holiday trip <laughs> back to Melbourne and met some of my uh, engineering colleagues. Actually met with uh, Jack in the coffee shop and they were thinking about doing a fintech. They were telling me uh, everything imported to Australia is so expensive uh, that the banks are ripping of the SMEs on the Forex. I said, yeah, you are engineers. You have built an FX for, for the banks before. Why don't you start a FinTech? I don't see anyone doing that in, in Asia, by the way. And I can introduce some of the VCs to you. Yeah, so end up he coming to China and to Hong Kong. I introduced uh, two of the early investors to them. And by 2018, they are already a very big company. It's uh, almost like $1 billion, become a unicorn. And I say, yeah could be uh, something there. And I look at their portfolio and their customers, and many of them are doing uh, super well. I, I saw Xi'in uh, in their customer table uh, back in the days, and they are growing very rapidly. 
and also uh, the gaming companies and the e-commerce companies. A lot of them didn't raise a significant amount of VC money, but they are still growing. It's a profitable uh, business model. So I start to research uh, what's going on here. So I found out that uh, if you want to do e-commerce and you want to touch anything uh, that involves supply chain, you've got to have a, an angle in Asia because most of the supply chain are still here, right? So, and another thing is I find that a lot of the purely uh, technology company, they usually have an Asian founder, co-founder, uh, be it Chinese or Indian, uh, because the engineering pool is much bigger and cheaper, so they have a competitive advantage. And by the way, all the Chinese engineers will work uh, 996, right? So you iterate uh, much faster. So a lot of examples uh, seem to point to that direction. So I talked to the, uh, the, the LPs I know, and they also take notice of the trend. And I say, why don't we do a proof of concept? We find uh, this kind of uh, companies uh, through our payment data, uh, through some of the logistics companies uh, we are familiar with, and we'll collate those data and find out who's growing faster and talk to them. And we can help you become a more international company from uh, quite early on. Just doing what uh, ByteDance should have done uh, many years ago and doing what uh, Airwallex was doing uh, right. And you build a very multinational uh, brand uh, from day one. So you don't run into the political issues uh, much later on. So that kind of become our thesis. And we've been doing that uh, for the last three years, uh, not just with uh, Chinese founders, but sometimes help the, uh, the European, the American founder to do uh, supply chain, find them a good uh, co-founder in Asia to manage all these. So they avoid the first three or uh, more years of a learning, learning curve on that front. And sometimes we will hire a CTO uh, for the UK fintech companies uh, in, in China or Hong Kong or India. So they become uh, very multinational. They have a remote kind of a uh, work base uh, distributed across the world. Some of those companies, they are already winning uh, battles in their home countries. So we really believe in the future of this model. Uh, so we are very deep involved in every of those uh, portfolios growth. Yeah, it's not like uh, we are investing 50 companies every year. Doesn't work. We can only invest in uh, two to three companies every year, but then uh, really go deep. So that's uh, what I'm doing now. <laughs> Let's talk about what it means to be an yeah. international company. Right, right. There's this cliche among the global uh, cosmopolitans of, you mm -hmm. know, I'm not from here or there. I'm a right. citizen of the world. Mm -hmm. Does that work for companies mm -hmm. or for founders? Right. Can you be a company of the world and not fit into, mm -hmm. you know, a label or a bucket? Mm -hmm. um, does that work for VCs? Does it work for LPs that like to kind of diversify geographically? Mm -hmm. Does it work for customers who like to know where their you know, products are coming from in some cases? Mm -hmm. What are the advantages and the challenges mm -hmm. of this kind of post-national approach? Yeah, 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 good question. So the challenge we face when we were first like uh, talking this idea with all the LPs, right? We found the LPs have uh, yeah, very clean buckets in their allocations, right? They want uh, US GPs to be investing in US companies serving US customers. It's also because of the institutional setup of all the GPs. So when we were doing this, we we're also testing who's going to be our competition, right? So if uh, those companies are doing so well and they're all based somewhere, right? The team, uh, would the VCs be very interested in them? And we found out uh, the VCs also have uh, their own setups. So they don't talk in between the geographics, even if it's uh, global VCs and it's all side. Uh, kind of a separate pockets of carry and incentives, right? So many of the time, these companies, especially early on, uh, will fall through the crack and no one gets noticed. That was actually an opportunity. Uh, in early stage, if someone can really uh, go global and look at the whole picture and find out uh, how do you do diligence on their uh, logistics and the supply chain in Asia at one time, but also being able to do diligence on their customers uh, globally. And that's a special skill set. It's really difficult for the founders as well. <laughs> no one wants to be on a plane half of the time, right? That was before COVID. You have to give credit to the founder of Airwallex because uh, back in the first three years, I think all the co-founders, five of them, uh, they were traveling like crazy, uh, especially uh, Jack and the, the China CEO back then. 
they are all becoming like the premium members of all the major airlines. <laughs> but then the good thing was uh, COVID happens. Sorry to say that, but then uh, it was really good for multinational uh, companies, especially when you're early on, to be finally uh, not being able to travel and people are okay with it. You're on Zoom all the time with your team, with your customers. Uh, but then even for the local competitor, they are on Zoom, right? So people got used to that. So those years really changed the definition of how you operate uh, as a global company. It really levels the playing field. But it goes back to uh, what really makes a global company, right? So the multinational we worked with back at the China Renaissance, they all started as a local company. But something happened and they forced uh, to pivot, right? So when the supply chain started to move to Asia, if you're a car manufacturer in Japan or in the US, uh, some of them already died because they don't want to move their supply chain to Asia, right? Those who survived actually become uh, multinational quite early on. But back then, you have to set up everything locally. Uh, it's a huge kind of a capex investment, a people investment, and take lots of uh, managerial skill. But nowadays, if you are asset light, you are e-commerce, uh, you are engineering company, either doing B2C or B2B, uh, all your asset, all your management is online data and the engineers, right? And you have Zoom, you have Jira, you have Slack. Uh, the only thing you need to do is uh, manage the time zones, uh, managing how you internally communicate and uh, the, the language barriers. But now with uh, all kinds of uh, yeah, technology, it becomes uh, easier every year. Uh, and with AI, right? I did want to ask mm. about that. It is one of the simplest but most pervasive <laughs> challenges of doing yeah. business across borders, right, right, right. time zones, languages. Mm -hmm. Um, what are some of your portfolio founders' best mm -hmm. practices? Uh, where, what do you advise them yeah, yeah, yeah. when they're trying to run an operation, mm -hmm. you know, trans-Pacific, mm -hmm. uh, and, and dealing with time zone issues, dealing with language right. issues? Right, right, right. Uh, you mentioned there's technologies that make it easier. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm assuming you mean you know, Google Translate and these kinds of things. But what, what yeah. do you have in mind? Or what, what, mm -hmm. what, what are best practices for, for handling some of these right, right, right. So I think from the engineering perspective, I think the documentation and all the, uh, the software that engineers use, because they're speaking the language of uh, coding, right? It's not really English or Chinese. It's kind of, you look at documentation and people understand each other and they would uh, do sprint uh, within those software. Feel like a global uh, happy family, mm -hmm. uh, even within different time zones, because they all work like very late hours, <laughs> talk to each other, right? So that's one thing. But on the sales and marketing and the managerial side, yeah, I, I really did uh, watch uh, ByteDance actually uh, building this internal system mm -hmm. to do a live translation and subtitle from Chinese to English and vice versa, and even Japanese. And for then, internal meetings. For internal meetings, and also uh, meeting with uh, their, their customer. And they are doing that uh, very well. So that's something uh, already being adapted by lots of other companies. What about on the marketing side? Yeah. What have you seen as best practices for acquiring mm -hmm. users in an overseas environment? Right. So for the companies we usually work on, they are uh, digital companies. So that's also a, a good thing because you have a high frequency of data, right? If you are doing e-commerce, uh, take Shein and uh, maybe even ByteDance, for example, uh, they see all the data from the users, day in and day out, and they can iterate uh, quite fast. So I think uh, some of the uh, successful things the founders did was actually uh, really rely on uh, recent data, high-frequency data, instead of uh, hiring someone who really think they know, mm. because the experience could be outdated uh, quite soon. And we've seen uh, lots of companies because they have their own uh, uh, mindset of what's the right way of uh, approaching customer in a certain country, but then uh, end out because the customer demographics they change it a lot. If you don't rely on recent data and the live feedback and the tight feedback loops, you actually uh, make more mistakes uh, that way. So a lot of the local companies, they actually lose in this battle, the older school companies. Uh, they actually have much big, bigger teams, uh, more resources, but they still rely on older methods, like consulting teams, uh, doing customer like focus groups. It's actually a lower frequency. Yeah, you can only do that once in a while. You cannot do that every day, right? So I think that's a really differentiating point between the new digital company and the older incumbents and why the startups are winning in some of those uh, battles. And then there are interesting examples of a company, a startup company that bridge 
the culture gap, and also the language barrier. There's a very interesting company in uh, Shenzhen. None of the founders speak Japanese, mm. but they built this uh, AI note taker, which is already the number one uh, meeting note taker in Japan. Mm. <laughs> and uh, they, are, they are using all the AIs to level the playing field. So now with uh, the, the big AI programs, actually it's much easier uh, to, to proofwrite uh, that the native kind of uh, language in their product description, in their customer service, and also even in their marketing campaign, how you do the SEOs uh, as, as the locals, right? And it's all about asking the right questions. And nowadays, many of the founders, they are not uh, hiring full-time uh, marketing people or brand people uh, in the US or Europe. They will use uh, freelancers on the marketplace, just like the US startups are doing, right? So that also leveled the playing field for international uh, companies uh, on day one. So that's uh, one thing I take uh, notice. But you are right. Lots of the foreign companies, right? Even if they have all the data, but they don't see what's the underlying logic. So uh, many of the company, I encourage the founders to actually go to your home market, uh, even watch the TV commercials, <laughs> so you know what the local customer are more familiar with, and understand what, what they care, and uh, what's ESG, uh, what's uh, inclusion, right? Understand all these com concepts, why they are so important. If you don't talk about those, you will look very uh, foreign to them, even if uh, every other translation of you were, were right. You start to doing uh, the same things the multinationals are doing, uh, in, uh, really embrace the, the local culture and the value. And that takes time and takes experience. It also takes a mentality uh, to have a really diverse uh, culture and the makeup of your founding team uh, as early on as possible. What kind of qualities do you think founder needs to be successful in the cross-border? The data kind of mindset, uh, product-driven uh, engineering culture. Uh, and then internally, I think it's about uh, having a, a culture, a very diverse culture. So you could uh, actually listen to the people on the ground uh, instead of uh, making very centralized decisions at the top. So we've seen a lot of the company uh, go abroad, uh, very well resourced, lots of money being spent hiring the country manager, building up the whole team on the ground. But then the top level people, they only treat them as country managers, right? They wouldn't really adapt the product to the local market. And those companies are destined to fail uh, very quickly. But we keep on seeing examples of those because of the internal culture and also the organizational uh, setup. So I think those are the lessons we learned uh, within, within those years. But for the founder, I actually think it's good to have multicultural and uh, co-founders from day one. Yeah, we, we talk to a lot of the companies. They also want to be very diverse. They want to have the engineering base in Asia, right? But no one's able to manage uh, those engineers. So if you have an Asian co-founder in the engineering team, it will be uh, much easier uh, for you. You will be able to do remote uh, on day one. And also, if you don't have a, a supply chain uh, manager coming from Asia, uh, you can fly to Guangzhou all the time. People will treat you as a foreign company, right? They wouldn't give you uh, the, the right treatment. Uh, they will try to say you are very short term and we are not, either not going to work with you or we are going to uh, be, be very short term in their tactics. But if you have someone here, or even if you have someone coming here as a local, uh, you can save a lot of money and being able to speed things up. So with all those uh, successful uh, B2C uh, product company, I've seen usually they have a co-founder actually sleeping in the factory <laughs> for a few months to, to get things right. And then uh, people take you seriously. And then uh, you, you, your product will, will actually be in uh, top quality and that will impress your customers uh, elsewhere. And you are on the same level of even Nike, right? Because it's coming from the same kind of, kind of factories, right? So two co-founders mm -hmm. from two different cultures and one right. is on the ground mm -hmm. in, uh, in the supply side in Asia right, and then right. one on the ground in the market doing sales and doing business development. Is that sort of how these companies find a natural equilibrium? Yeah, yeah that, that's ideal. That's why I think uh, lots of the American startups, because uh, there are lots of uh, Chinese migrants, Indian migrants, in America, and you would be surprised how many of them already have that uh, mix. You can take uh, the example of uh, Zoom or Lime, yeah, all these companies, they, they are doing it, but they just uh, 
haven't really articulated that's a strategy. But for us, we think it's already a strategy. And many other companies can learn from these kind of companies. Right? Yeah, and even for B2B companies, we are seeing, seeing uh, yeah, that the market in, in the US or Europe, they're really close to the end customers. But then uh, their engineering base is really not in, in the US, which is the most expensive in the world. Yeah, and because it's so easy for the software engineers to find other jobs, right? Maybe not this year, but even last year, it's much easier. So a lot of people think that the economy is deglobalizing. Cross-border supply chains mm. are risky operationally, maybe right. reputationally, that there's re-onshoring and nearshoring, mm. right. and that the true higher cross-border play mm -hmm. is not sustainable. How do you respond to it? So all these years, uh, one thing I've learned is uh, yeah, I try not to convince people. <laughs> yeah, I show them uh, that the, the data mm. they didn't see and they come up to their own conclusion. I think that's a much better way. Mm. So for, for this one, uh, we actually talk a lot <laughs> with the LPs and other GPs. And we see that in, in the news every day, right? But you don't make investment decisions based on the, uh, what the public media is uh, telling you. So I show them uh, a few sets of data. It's quite, quite fascinating. How do you define globalization. It's the movement of goods, the movement of people, and also movement of capital, right? And then on top of that, it's the movement of information. Mm. So you can see uh, deglobalization really happened only in the movement of capital. And that's only uh, regionally because of the restriction on Asia outbound ODI and uh, very little money is coming into uh, some of the Asian countries, right? But then uh, if you look at US, the largest economy, their ODI is actually uh, still increasing, even this year and the last year, for 4 and 5% uh, year on year. And you look at uh, global trade of goods, uh, the value seemed to be decreasing this year and the last year. And that's because uh, people wanted cheaper goods. You look at the volume, the volume never decreased. People uh, globally, they still want to buy stuff. Uh, you go to your local grocery, you go to your local supermarket, you look at the, uh, the, the tech, where are things made? It's still very hard to find made in America or made in Western Europe, right? So US uh, import of goods and services, uh, did last year, 2022, you would think it might shrink, right? But actually increase 16%. I think it's the rerouting of global supply chain rather than decoupling. It's more apt to the situation right now. And you can see that on the logistic companies, uh, what they are doing, uh, where the containers are, are going. And then for the movement of people, you will be surprised. Uh, this year and the last year, the international travel was already doubling. Most of the country are going back to 80% or 90% of pre-COVID. Right? So people are actually traveling a lot. And the one last thing we did was actually looking at uh, uh, the internet searches, globalization versus decoupling. And then we have a chart here. So this is globalization. This is decoupling. These are search for words. Search for words on Google Trends. And these lines represent the search for local supplier, global supplier. And guess what's this line that jumped? China supplier. <laughs> so even in the midst of uh, all the deglobalization, uh, China, US trade war, people are still searching a lot for supplier in China. So that's the real story uh, behind the scene, apart from all the rhetorics <laughs> in the news and media. And in terms of uh, reputational risk and operational risk, people are thinking, yeah, I cannot have uh, all supplier in one country. But then uh, it's really hard to diversify out of uh, Asia right now. But we are seeing even the Chinese suppliers, they are diversifying into Southeast Asia. So they are bigger uh, multinational customers. They were few, yeah, more politically correct to have a, a very diverse uh, supplier base. So I think that's happening uh, right now. It will become uh, more complicated. It will take a lot more uh, management. It will take a, take a stronger local manager uh, to figure out what was the best supply chain because it, the land is quickly shifting behind their feet. How do you think about the question of national identity when communicating with customers? Mm -hmm. Do you encourage founders to present themselves mm -hmm. as a global brand? Are they ever pressured to hide mm -hmm. their identity or their origin mm. and appear like they are a truly local bred mm -hmm. organization? It's a very uh, intricate question because you, you cannot hide who you are, right? <laughs> you, you go to Zoom meeting, people will still uh, know, know who you are, where you are from. There's a scale of how much this matters for different verticals. Mm. If you're a consumer brand 
and you are low-cost kind of a competitor, then actually it doesn't matter that much. So people will still look at your product. Uh, take Xi'in and uh, Timu, for example. They are the top app in the U.S. market. People know they are from uh, the, the Chinese origin, right? But still, the, the prices are so competitive, uh, lots of people still buy it. It's like you go to the supermarket, lots of people don't care if the uh, product is, <laughs> is made in China. It's very hard actually to convince people to pay 100% premium to buy made in America or made in UK, right? So those companies, they, they are okay. Uh, but then it comes to the other extreme. So if you're doing AI and also uh, data sensitive or FinTech, for example, a lot of data, a lot of uh, consumer data, uh, and even for TikTok, it, it's not that political because people are just watching stuff for fun, right? But it can go to the uh, politicians and they will use it uh, as a gun against you. Uh, your competitors, of course, will use that against you. Right? So for those kind of uh, verticals, uh, I would advise the founder to be very international uh, on, on day one. When you talk to the Nordic companies like Estonia, uh, Sweden, they have large consumer brands and large technology companies, but they go global on day one. I take Israel, for example. There's no home market, mm -hmm. but everyone's uh, been, uh, doing very well in, in US and Europe. Right? And they don't need to hire their, hide their identity, but the customer don't take notice. They, they say, we just like your, like your product, like your service, so we buy it, right? So we are going to see uh, many of those companies uh, in, in the future. So I, I tell some of the companies, you should use uh, bias and the racism <laughs> positively. <laughs> so if you are an engineering company, you have something to do with uh, automotive, right? You should uh, set up office, the legal entity in, in Germany. <laughs> if you want to do the designer, house and uh, around the whole market. Maybe you should be a Swedish company, right? You can hire the people from IKEA, the designers, right? Yeah, if you are uh, very, uh, like say, gaming company or cartoon company, maybe you should uh, hire people in Japan, right? Take care of that. So Japan is another interesting example to learn. Uh, most of the Japanese companies are very local back in the 90s, right? But then because of the economy, the tide has turned uh, the company you see are doing super well. Uh, they all started to go overseas during the 90s. Otherwise, they would have died. So back then, I think the, the relationship between uh, U.S. and Japan is not uh, so well. But then uh, U.S. customers, European customers, they still buy Toyota, uh, Uniqlo. Uh, they buy Sony, right? The product is so good. And people forget they are Japanese product. They become a global brand. So we are going to see uh, a lot of the Asian companies are going down the same route, uh, become truly multinational uh, within five to 10 years, and people will forget where they are coming from. As these Asian companies yeah. go global, mm -hmm. do you advise them to attack mature markets, mm -hmm. the US and right. EU first, as kind of the lucrative, tough mm -hmm. nut to crack, do the mm -hmm. hard thing first, or advise starting with Southeast Asia or, right. or India or rest of the world, MENA, Latin America, mm -hmm. and then grow strength globally and then go to those markets last. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of that is uh, predetermined by uh, what product or what a niche market uh, you, you are in. So uh, if your product is uh, very expensive, uh, it's a large item, then uh, really, uh, you can only go into the more developed market because of the maturity in uh, logistics, payment, and people are willing to shop online for bigger items. Uh, it doesn't work for those companies to go into like Southeast Asia or even East Europe, mm -hmm. where we uh, are surprised to find out that the cash on delivery is still very high. Lots of people are, are not trusting online uh, purchase. So they would inspect the product first, mm -hmm. Yeah, so that doesn't work in those countries. But if you are doing, say, a sub uh, 50 US dollar kind of a ticket price, yeah, and you have a strong cost competitiveness, you can go to Southeast Asia, uh, Eastern Europe, those countries first. Uh, because ROI is higher, it's less competition, uh, less people are going there uh, right now. So that's, that's one thing. And then uh, I find out with all the successful players, it actually uh, didn't happen on day one. They all pivoted uh, several times until they found that, it, that market is really good for me. So for example, the, the company that went to Japan, there was another company doing apparel. They were selling to the US and Europe, find out that it didn't work. 
because they, they don't want to be uh, distributing uh, Amazon. So they built their own uh, D2C uh, shop. For, for Japan, it actually worked. They found out that the Japanese uh, girls and uh, the older women would buy their clothes at a much higher price uh, they would otherwise uh, pay. And they developed a very local uh, kind of team in Japan to actually bow to customers <laughs> when the customers are not happy uh, with the product. So very interesting uh, marketing strategy because in Japan, people will actually report to the police if they find uh, the product is not so well. <laughs> so they have to do that in Japan. And lots of the gaming companies, they were tackling uh, US and European market at first, but then they found out that the Middle East markets actually uh, is willing to pay at a much higher price. They probably have some uh, Shiak paying uh, millions every year just to play their games. <laughs> so they have a whole team just to serve this Shiak. <laughs> so very similar to what China has uh, happened back in, back in the days. And they take for uh, Jensen Impact, that game. Yeah. Lots of people think uh, it's, it's actually Japanese origin, but that's actually uh, Chinese. They're conquering the world uh, right now. Uh, very good engineers. So I think it's actually a lot of time happened by accident. You pivot within your product niche. Uh, you pivot depend on the data you see from all kinds of countries. Because for digital companies, actually uh, much easier. But for B2B companies, uh, most of the time, they are still having uh, to go to the, the more developed places. Uh, it doesn't work to be a SaaS company in uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, lots of the B2C companies are winning, but B2B, I think, still need to wait uh, because of the labor is still uh, quite cheap. So you want to replace the engineering uh, kind of labor uh, if they are in the US, right? So B2B is still uh, US, Western Europe, or even Japan. Uh, those are the good markets. So really depend on your, on your niche. And also depend on the founders. If you are familiar with a certain market, you have studied there, you have a local team there, so by all means, you should tackle that market first. You have a higher uh, chance of success. So that's the factors I think the founders should consider when they start the business. Yeah. George, your story uh, strikes uh, me as just a, a story of agility. I mean, you've pivoted yeah. between different roles on different sides of the table and continue looking for the next opportunity. Can you reflect on that agility a little bit? How did you develop it? How would you... And how would you encourage others to develop agility? I'm particularly interested in this question of how do you know when to pivot in your career versus when to keep your head down and mm -hmm. just push through when there's a challenge? When, when macro circumstances shift, do you hold or fold? Mm. Yeah, interesting question. So I don't think I'm uh, very well qualified <laughs> to give uh, life lessons or career advice. <laughs> I'm still in the, in the middle of it. I think the only lesson I, I think I can share was uh, when you're young, you really have to, based on your decisions, not on the immediate uh, kind of uh, monetary uh, incentives. It's actually about the experience. But when you're young, right, you have nothing to lose. So you can take a lot of risk, experiment a lot. Uh, try to do that as early on as possible. Because once you have family and everything, uh, the, the decision making uh, become much harder, right? There are a lot to lose. I think also being fired very early on in your career <laughs> after just one year also helps. <laughs> so you've been through the whole uh, difficulty and you think uh, you, you, you have the ability to always uh, recover from that. You, you can pivot. You say, uh, when should I stick through the storm, right? So I think the first uh, final fund, when we started, uh, those five years were really tough. We, we were on a shoestring budget. We were competing with uh, much bigger players. And also the LPs takes a lot of uh, education. But we go back to our research like every month, and we think, yeah, we're doing something right. The supply and the demand is uh, in our favor. We don't see a lot of uh, yeah, competition on the secondary side. We don't see a lot of the government fund uh, doing this. So if we keep on uh, digging deeper, we keep on return money to the to the LPs. Uh, they will take notice, and we will build a track record slowly but surely. So those were the years we really uh, fortified, keep on doing the same thing, because we really believe in the in the future of the industry. But where to pivot? I think it's really uh, you got to be realistic about uh, what what's the short term kind of cycles. You can wear the cycles, right? Uh, there will be up and down. It couldn't be a good year every year. But then you see those mega trends uh, coming at you. Uh, and those were the times you have to be uh, really open-minded. 
activities and always about experiment. So when we were making the decision, we couldn't be sure if we are doing the right thing. It's always about the feedback loop and you look at whether those trends are actually uh, uh, going uh, according to your prediction. So it's always a dynamic uh, kind of process. It's not just like uh, making one decision. It's a series of decisions. Sometimes it's uh, one step forward, two step back, but then uh, you, you have to keep on doing that. So I think that's uh, something you, you, you have to do in this kind of uh, environment, Yeah, especially for our generation. We were lucky in the uh, first half of our career, but now I think uh, yeah, things are in a different level, also for the entrepreneurs and also for the uh, global allocators, wherever you are. So you need to look, uh, like Ray Dario said, beyond your generation. <laughs> so we are in that moment. You have to look at what happened. But then it's a good thing that uh, because of the human nature, they did, haven't really evolved the human emotion. We still have uh, Stone Age emotions and medieval like uh, organization cultures, but God-like technology. right? <laughs> so you still look at the history, uh, look at humanity. Uh, lots of things they were come and go in circles. You kind of expect uh, how things will become. And once you realize that, uh, I think it gives you much more clarity about your own decisions and people's behaviors and uh, what's the worst that will happen. And you try to uh, prepare for that. So that, that's the lessons I learned over those years, I think, to be fully agile. Uh, to embrace what's going to happen. <laughs> I remember reading Dalio's, you know, his parity mm -hmm. strategy mm -hmm. and uh, the value of non-correlated cash flows. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, what if you could apply that same logic to your life and the sources of satisfaction, of fulfillment mm -hmm. flows mm -hmm. that you get into your life? Mm -hmm. How do you diversify your sense of fulfillment in life to benefit from multiple non-correlated flows of satisfaction in your life? Yeah, so one thing that I learned during the family office years, what makes you uh, truly happy? I've seen a lot of the, uh, the second generation, many of them uh, get too much material quite early on, but not very happy. And you talk to them, you find out uh, the happiness is actually coming from whether you have a, a goal to be fulfilled, if you, don't, if you don't have a goal, you think, yeah, I already have everything, right? You will never be happy. <laughs> and then the happiness only comes from the incremental. <laughs> That's how you reach your goal. So the process is actually uh, really important. So after learning that, I think that was uh, five or six years ago. So I start to uh, have a series of goals that I want to achieve. It's not all about the career. Sometimes it can be just about uh, learning something new or visiting uh, some other places you always want to go, right? So you have that set of uh, uh, smaller goals and milestones, and you uh, dedicate time. It's not good to have a goal that's uh, too easy <laughs> to, to be uh, fulfilled, right? You put in some effort, yeah, after a few strive, and then uh, you actually reach your goal and make, make you happy. <laughs> so you've got to keep on doing that uh, for, the, for the rest of your life. So right now, like uh, raising my kids uh, to be happy and successful is one of the goals. And also have a happy family and also have uh, yeah, some of the hobbies I always wanted uh, to, to have. Uh, I didn't have time when I was uh, younger. So now I can actually do those things, uh, picking up some uh, new skills, uh, learning how to code with the help of AI, finally. <laughs> so those are the uh, interesting things I think uh, people, people should have, not just to have your career goal. And also another thing is uh, to actually uh, help others to success. I think that's actually uh, uh, very fulfilling, uh, sometimes more fulfilling than uh, just making sure you have everything uh, to, to yourself. Sometimes uh, with the founders and the families that we work with, uh, you treat them as long-term uh, friends. So make sure the younger uh, entrepreneurs, they have something to learn from you. You advise them from the long-term, uh, not just from the short-term and you see them uh, become more successful and you feel uh, truly happy and fulfilled uh, in the same time because it's not just you uh, who become successful. At certain time, you, you become uh, aware that you cannot always uh, strike the home run year on a year out. I don't think there will be another uh, so big company just like uh, ByteDance, right? At certain time, you 
uh, start to enjoy the little incrementals <laughs> from zero to one to ten. <laughs> Make sure all these people are having their own success. So that increases the chance of yourself being happy. <laughs> because if you're working with ten people and two of them become successful, you will be happy, right? <laughs> if you're only working for yourself, the, the chance is much lower. <laughs> so I think it's human nature uh, to, to be helping each other and you feel great about it. It's, it's in our DNA. I think <laughs> we are social animals. Do you think the technologies like yeah. AI and, uh, and, and the ability to go to Mars are going to give us a new perspective on our own common humanity? Yeah, yeah I think uh, technology advancement is actually very good for human race. You realize we are very much similar <laughs> from the emotion side, the, the family side, how you want your kids to develop, how you uh, take care of the older people. It's not much different. <laughs> but a lot of the war and the internal pressure, the political, is all about fighting for resources, right? So once you have uh, endless energy, endless resources, it's all, uh, yeah, looking at the, the, the incrementals. So you're no longer to fight uh, within the pie. So people will be more tolerating, and especially if you find out uh, new races in, in the space, that will change the human nature, I think. So that's a, yeah, very exciting thing to do. Maybe AI could help. <laughs> we got a lot to look forward to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the meantime, thank yeah. you, George, for thank this you. conversation. Thank you. I learned so much, and, um, and I'm excited to see what, what comes next. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. To support, please check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes, follow me on LinkedIn, and of course, subscribe to The Essence of Investing wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I am signing off your happy and humble host, Jonathan Reckman. See you next time. The Essence of Investing podcast is powered by Next Level Communication and by the world of allocators. Next Level Communication helps investors and multinational executives in Asia tell their stories to their most important global stakeholders. Get in touch at reachnextlevel.net to learn more about cross-border IR, strategic communication, and presentation training services. The world of allocators encourages long-term thinking and the adoption of the endowment approach among asset managers in China. Get in touch to join our community of domestic and overseas practitioners.